With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. Welcome to Marching Orders, a this week community news podcast series devoted to Central Ohio military veterans sharing their experiences. I'm Scott Hummel, and this is our season one finale, so let's get right to it. He's a U.S. Army veteran who was commissioned in 2011 and worked with a small advising team that was responsible for mentoring, training, and coaching the Afghan National Army as part of Operation Enduring Freedom in 2013 and 2014. He then went on to serve in Virginia, laying fallen heroes to rest at Arlington National Cemetery. The retired captain's decoration includes the, include the Ranger tab, Expert Infantry badge, Parachutist badge, Air Assault badge, Afghanistan Campaign Medal, Army Commendation Medal with one Oak Leaf Cluster, Army Achievement Medal with three Oak Leaf Clusters, National Defense Service Medal, Global War on Terrorism Service Medal, the Army Service Ribbon and NATO Medal. From Columbus, Ohio, Captain Craig Marin, welcome to Marching Orders. Hi, thanks for having me. Craig, help our readers get to know you just a little bit. Tell us about your family, what keeps you busy these days. And I know you're a project manager at Hot Chicken Takeover, and you have a dog named Dirty. Let's start by giving us the dirt on Dirty. Yeah, um, I adopted Dirty uh, from a rescue here in Columbus um, about two years ago now. Uh, and it was a really great decision because he uh, doesn't leave my side. He's got like a shadow of dog, um, and he's all white. And I'm a big old school hip hop fan. And he had a spot on his nose that looked exactly like the Wu-Tang Clan W. And so I named him after uh, a member of that group. And the spot has since faded, but the name is stuck. And tell us about Hot Chicken Takeover, what you do there. Yeah, I work as a project manager on our operations team. Um, Basically, any sort of operational efficiency project, uh, new restaurant development, menu innovation, any sort of operational focused project that gets thrown my way. It's my job to kind of take the, the strategic idea and make it a, a, something that can be implemented at the tactical level. Yeah, and I understand you've got an old Ford Bronco that you like to work on. Is, is that a project car? Yeah, it's actually also my daily driver, uh, but I find myself leaning over, over the side of it, working on it pretty much every week at some point. Um, out of necessity or out of fun or a combination uh, of both? A little bit of both. <laughs> What's some of the things you've done to it? Most of it has been pretty easy and straightforward, which is good because I'm not too mechanically inclined. Um, replace an alternator, replace an oxygen sensor, belts. Um, yeah. What year is it? 89. 89. Gosh, 30 years. I understand you're somewhat of a Civil War history buff as well, and you enjoy posting some obscure facts about it on your Instagram account. What's maybe an obscure fact about the Civil War people might not know, and where can they find you on Instagram? Um, well, you know, I um, I got into posting a series about Southern officers who were born in the South but stayed loyal to the United States. And I think there's this kind of myth out there that, makes it sound like everyone who was born in the South ended up fighting for the South, and that wasn't really the case. There was quite a few who stayed loyal to their oath to to the Constitution. So I highlighted uh, a series of those officers. Um, 
And I think it's an important part of our history because those people probably endured a lot, you know, going and fighting against their family in order to protect the U.S. I sure did. And where can people find you on your Instagram? Oh, I'm just at Craig A. Marin. Um, yeah, not the most active account, though, so... And you were born and raised in Cincinnati. What was it like growing up in Cincy? Big family, small family? Yeah, I have two older brothers. Uh, we lived in the suburb of Evendale, just maybe 20 minutes north of downtown. Um, yeah, it was a pretty typical uh, suburban life growing up. Reds fans? Yeah, my, my dad is a big baseball fan, but it didn't really translate to, to the rest of us. Uh, we were, ended up being more of a basketball fam- family. And you went to Princeton High School. A lot, of, a lot of NFL players attended Princeton, including Carlos Hyde, at least for his freshman year anyway. What was Princeton like? Uh, Princeton was a really fantastic experience. I loved going to school there. Uh, it was very diverse um, from a lot of different perspectives, um, racially and ethnically diverse, as well as socioeconomic. And I feel like I got a great foundational education while I was there, but just more importantly, the breadth of experience, the people I interacted with on a day-to-day basis was kind of fundamental in the person I became later. And you went to Ohio State. See, Princeton, I think, was a scarlet and gray uh, school. And so then you went to Ohio State, scarlet and gray, graduated in, in uh, 2011 with degree, a degree in philosophy. How did that prepare you for the military? And did the uh, the Army Arazzo, Razzi program there guide you in that direction or was philosophy something you always took interested in even while you're at Princeton? No, the ROTC department definitely did not guide me in that direction. Uh, their recruitment efforts, I think, are probably maintain this way today is towards kind of the STEM fields, science and technology, mathematics. So studying philosophy was not on their wishes. Um, I got into philosophy because I was interested in studying ethical decision making and I thought it was going to be really important to my role in the military as well so I, yeah I didn't really look past what I was doing in the military I was like this is the most important thing I was I could do and this was the best way I could prepare for that you're listening to marching orders I'm Scott Hummel with Craig Marin you were commissioned in 2011 through ROTC so what sparked your interest in the military in the first place I mean I know a lot of times it's family background or is something going on in the world like an act of war but what drew you to it and how many recruiting branches did you visit before settling on the army yeah um you know i we were not a military family I, my my grandfather on my father's side had served um but he passed away long before i was born so i it wasn't something that was fed to me from my parents or my grandparents um i think my you know, growing up in the 9-11 era, um, kind of seeing these conflicts unfold before my eyes as a child kind of left this impression that these conflicts were going to be the the most defining event of our generation. I don't know, looking back, if that ended up necessarily to be true, but that's certainly how I felt at 18. Um, and I wanted to play a part in it. On top of that, I think that there's this idea as a young man of being 18 years old that you wanted to go off and do something adventurous. I wanted, I wasn't ready to sit behind a desk at 22 and work a nine to five. Um, I wanted that kind of, that hero's journey where you go out and you depart from your hometown and you go through some sort of initiation um, and you experience crisis and then you come home. Um, I mean, there's a reason why it's called baptism by fire. And I, that really appealed to me. 
you were actually pretty young, I guess, when 9-11 occurred. What were you, 11 or 12 at the time? Pretty yeah. young. So. Yeah, I remember I was in seventh grade. I don't That I don't had know. to have been pretty scary once you found out about it. Yeah, I don't remember... I don't remember feeling particularly scared, but I do remember thinking that things are going to be different now. And you have your uh, your parachutist badge, your jump wings. What was the difference between your first jump and your last one? I'm talking your nerves, your fear, your your carry load, the time of day that you made the jump. What were those experiences of jumping out of a perfect, perfectly good airplane like? Yeah, uh, the first jump for me was actually the easiest. I think you're so excited and your adrenaline's going so hard that you're not particularly aware of all the things that could potentially go wrong. Um, by the time my last jump came around, I was very much aware of those things. Mm. Uh, and so um, I guess the adrenaline wasn't running quite as hard. Uh, and so my last jump ended up being a little more scary than my first. First jump you do, no equipment. You just, you and your shoot. Last jump we did... You're rigged up with all your equipment, and we did it at night, actually. It was a night jump. But once you jump out of the airplane, the canopy opens, and you're floating down. It's pretty cool, especially at night, because you just see these silhouettes of parachutes falling beside you. Uh, that was pretty neat. Could you see things pretty well at night? Or what, was it moonlit, or was it just pure dark? Or how was it? Yeah, you just kind of see these silhouettes floating beside you, and then that's about all you can see. Um, and you can see the silhouette of the tree line that... Kind of indicates race for impact. <laughs> Operation Enduring Freedom started in, two, in 2001, right after 9-11, and lasted for over 13 years. You got the call to go to Afghanistan in 2013. Were you expecting to be deployed to Afghanistan at the time? And, and what was your initial thought when you were given your orders to get ready to go? Yeah, I, I wasn't expecting to deploy at all, actually. Um, I'd gotten to my unit. There was talks about which part of our unit, which companies were going to be deployed and which ones weren't. And I was a platoon leader in our Bravo company at the time. And as we got closer and closer to deployment, it ended up being the case that um, Bravo company wasn't going to deploy. So I stayed stateside for the first three months. The rest of the battalion, or at least part of the battalion, uh, went over into Afghanistan. Um, I came in to work one day, went on a run with my platoon, got back to the office, the company commander asked me to come into his into his office, and I thought I thought I was in trouble, or one of my soldiers was in trouble. Um, and he asked me to shut the door, sat me down. It's like, "Hey, Lieutenant Marin, you're deploying to Afghanistan. You're leaving in seven days. You have four days to go see your family, uh, and then uh, be back here so we can get you on a plane over over to Afghanistan." Seven days. I imagine it took a few days just for the shock to wear off. Um, yeah, I was. You know, I joined during a time of conflict. I knew what I was getting myself into, so I was excited to go. But certainly, there's it was a whirlwind between the time I found out and by the time I was getting on an airplane. How'd your family take the news? Um, they were particularly shocked as well. Um, but they were, my parents were incredibly supportive, and uh, yeah, really grateful that they didn't kind of exacerbate that situation by by getting even more excited. And you were stationed in Kapisa province, a couple hours northeast of Kabul. What was the weather climate and just the terrain like there, and how did you prepare for it? Yeah, so Kapisa, it's a big, well, it's actually a really small province, but it's kind of segregated. In the north, 
of the province. We didn't operate too much, and it was pr- primarily Tajik, um, who are pretty hostile to the Taliban. Um, so the South was a kind of Pashtun um, population, which incurred a lot of insurgent activity. Um, it's kind of, if Kabul was pretty flat, uh, it was ramping up into the mountainous um, terrain that's like the Hindu Kush on the eastern uh, side of Afghanistan. So was, you had these, um, you know, just really flat plains, immediately followed by these steep-sided valleys with high peaks. Um, in the winter, it got really cold, especially up in the mountains, lots of snow. Um, but then it's brutally hot in the summer. And I've seen some of these, um, are they camel spiders? Is that what they're called? Did you ever see those? I didn't know. Yeah. I've seen some of those pictures and my gosh, those, those things look brutal. And you were, so you're part of the two, four infantry in the 10th mountain division. Your role included advising, mentoring, training, and coaching the Afghan national army. Aside from just the language barriers, which I'm sure were, were difficult enough, how difficult was it to develop a relationship with them and to earn each other's trust? Yeah, it was very difficult, um, especially coming in three months, three months into the tour. The advising team that I was a part of had already established relationship, and I was, I was the new guy. I was asked to be a partner with this Afghan commander um, who was kind of, he was the guy that was going to bring the ANA victory. He was a celebrated war hero and he had been fighting for the Taliban for, or against the Taliban for his whole life, more or less. Um, so there was a huge credibility gap that I had to overcome, especially being a new lieutenant. And I, I remember one of the first times meeting him, talking to him through a translator, and he's asking these questions. Have you fought the Taliban before? Nope. Have you fought, have you been to Afghanistan before? Nope. Have you fought in combat before? Nope. Um, so I had to build trust with them. And I think the only way that you can do that is to demonstrate your willingness to share the burden and to be alongside of them every step of the way. You said he was your uh, your counterpart there. He's a, a company commander and sort of a hero to his men. You know, how did he affect you as a young lieutenant with no combat experience? You know, that relationship was, it was interesting because... He had this wealth of knowledge of practical experience, but there were certainly things that he did that I thought I would never do. Um, just certain risks that he would take. Um, in the Afghan culture, the idea of pride is a lot more important. Um, so there were times where he would seek out the, the opportunity to kind of go toe-to-toe with Taliban and it was, assume some risks that, that if I was commanding the forces on the ground, I necessar- not necessarily would have done that. You're listening to marching orders. To that end, I mean, the two of you, you'd plan and execute various patrols, and, and your job was to help with the command and control of those patrols and help integrate U.S. assets like air support, medevac, intel, those kinds of things. Did you ever have disagreements or differences of opinion? And if so, how did you work those things out? Yeah, we, we certainly did. Um, but it's not something, if those disagreements come up, it's you can't draw a straight line between you and him. Uh, you have to find a way to uh, kind of use different motivational tactics or like try to coach them into maybe a different course of action. Um, and it was really difficult, especially using a translator. The And you have to be willing to accept some of those risks that you not, wouldn't necessarily take on if you were the, the ground force commander. Um, but that, that relationship 
is the whole reason why you're there. Um, if you destroy that relationship, then the unit that comes in behind you isn't going to have a good relationship. And their skills, uh, the A&A skills, is not, are not going to develop. And, that, and that's why you're there. So you need to kind of remove yourself from the mindset of my mission is to win this tactical interaction and understand that you're fighting a kind of a, a much longer, much broader war. And I imagine to some extent your relationship with him probably, uh, I guess, sort of transferred to those under your commands, too. I imagine they watched what he did and, and those with you watched what you did and probably reacted accordingly. Yeah, certainly. Uh, I mean, that's kind of universal to all military leadership is that um, you you have to set the example. And so if you have established some sort of negative relationship with your counterpart, then those around you are going to follow exactly in your footsteps. And you were there during Christmas. What was Christmas like in Afghanistan? Yeah, Christmas was actually a, a day I look back on pretty fondly. Um, so we had, the weather was terrible. And so lots of snow um, and the air was black, so it means helicopters aren't flying, which means you're not going out on patrol. Uh, so it was a nice kind of respite from our day-to-day. And my advising team, we all just kind of hunkered down in one of our, our one of our hooches, and we watched movies all day, and we played Monopoly. And it was the first time I'd watched uh, It's a Wonderful Life <laughs> over in Afghanistan oh, on wow. Christmas Day. Um, it, was a, it was a really memorable day. Introduction to Burton Ernie. Yeah. <laughs> now, your unit had been uh, retrograded from a forward operations base in Tagab District in Capiza to the Bagram Air, Airfield there about an hour west-northwest. You had mentioned an incident there while uh, the lead operations advisor on your team had gone for a run. What happened there? And what is it? D- just describe sort of um, what a retrograded position means. Sure. So we, our advising team was based out of Fab Tagab which was in Kapisa province. At this stage in the war, the U.S. footprint was really downsizing. So we turned that FOB over to ANA control, and they maintained a presence there uh, to run security operations of. Our advising team moved back to a more centralized location at Bagram Airfield. Um, and Bagram is just a monstrosity. It's huge. You have a big airfield in the middle of the base, thousands of soldiers based out of it um there's actually it's so big that there's a bus line that runs from one side of the the airfield to the other so it's a it's a huge base um multiple gyms on there uh and the kind of my biggest counterpart in the advising team and i uh, were often workout partners and i happened to not go with him on that day um and he went for a run run around the airfield and as he stepped off on his run um he noticed um, two Afghan civilians who were attempting to get into our motor pool. And our motor pool was it was just a, a gravel parking lot with a chain-link fence around it. Um, nonetheless, there, there shouldn't have been anyone trying to get gain access to that facility. Um, so he confronted those individuals, and when he did, he noticed some sort of bomb-making materials um, underneath their clothes. And... Um, what ensued was hand-to-hand combat and he was able to kill one of the two attackers um but the other one was able to get away after he struck uh, my friend over the the head with some sort of blunt object 
Uh, don't know if it was a rock or a pipe, something to that effect. Luckily, there was soldiers nearby who kind of witnessed this happen uh, and were able to rush to his aid, provide immediate care, um, apply pressure to his wound. Um, and we were able to get him back to our aid station and, and evacuate him back to Landstuhl. Did they ever find the uh, the other guy? Yes. Um, he was caught attempting to leave the airfield um, because his esophagus was dislocated and essentially like two or three inches off center. Mm. How'd that happen? Uh, Captain Walsh, my buddy, <laughs> did that to him. Um, now, how difficult was it for you to tell a friend from foe among the people in Afghanistan? The ANA wore uniforms, I assume, but not all fighters did, and... We know the Taliban and some other Afghans who were unfriendly with the ANA had infiltrated the ANA, even wearing the uniform and all, and had killed foreign troops. Do you kind of do you develop an instinct with people there? How, how do you get to where you can sort of tell who's on your side and who's not? Yeah, it's a difficult it's a difficult process, and I think for me, I, I had to trust that the ANA were going to have my back, and I think my experiences with them um, allowed me to do that. As an advisor, if I didn't show some sort of trust towards them, then I wasn't going to be successful at my mission. Um, there were incidents, with, we call it green on blue, where it's Afghan um, forces attack some sort of U.S. formation. And some of those happened while we were, while we were on deployment, luckily not in my unit. And if you do just if you don't just demonstrate some sort of trust towards them and you put up an entire wall, um, then you're not going to be able to develop them and be able allow them to be able to continue the fight against the Taliban and once we leave. So you keep your guard up, you're always aware, you know you look for things that shouldn't be happening, like people trying to get into our to our motor pool, but at some point you have to understand that. This job is not risk-free. It, it comes with the territory, and you have to assume some risk in that way. Now, with your job being someone who trained them and advised them, did it seem like most of them were really good about taking advice? Were they coachable for the most part? Sure. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's interesting because they have a wealth of knowledge that you don't have. I, I'm there for nine months, and I might have some some tactical knowledge or some theoretical knowledge, but they know the train, they know the people, they know every village in and out. Um, so it's, it's a mutually dependent relationship. Um, the other thing I'll say is that, you know, they may, the Afghan forces that we worked with, they might not be as well trained as us. They might not be, uh, as well equipped as us or, or as disciplined as us, but they were fighters and, you know, my unit was lucky. We didn't have any KIA on our deployment, but the Afghan units that we partnered with surely did. Um, and I have a lot of respect because they're fighting. This is different. We're going off to a foreign land. They're in their hometowns um, and they're protecting their own people. Uh, and I have a lot of respect for the ANA we partnered with. You're listening to Marching Orders. Did you develop some pretty good friendships just among some of the the civilians there or even those who were friendly to the cause were you able to get to know any of them um you know we kind of covered a large swath of train so we weren't really centrally located in, in a particularly uh 
particular village that allowed us to develop a relationship with the civilians. Um, the closest I would say is with some of our interpreters, but they were, they were with us day in and day out. Mm-hmm. You got the word you're coming home. What was that feeling like knowing you got through your deployment and you would be leaving soon? And how long did you end up staying there? Um, I was deployed for about nine months. Coming home is exciting. You're ready to come home, certainly. Yeah, I was I was ready to come home and just kind of move, search for that next next experience. Well, that next experience, 2015-2016, you're with the 3rd U.S. Infantry Regiment, the Old Guard at Fort Myer, Virginia. You were a platoon leader there and executed over 100 funerals. I mean, uh, talk about experiences. How difficult was that for you to lay to rest our nation's fallen heroes at Arlington? Um, yeah, it was... Uh, there were certainly some funerals that were more trying than others. Uh, a lot of the the burials that happened in Arlington, and certainly this doesn't make it any easier on the on the families for for retirees. Um, but every once in a while, you would get an active duty soldier who was killed, and those were particularly emotional, um, especially when you see you know the young wives and children that are left behind. But I'm really grateful for that experience. I almost to a T, you know, as officer in charge. Uh, of some of those ceremonies, I would have the responsibility uh, and the honor of taking that folded flag and passing it to the next of kin as you kind of recite those condolences to them. Um, and to a T, every single one of them would just say thank you to you over and over and over again. And it's so humbling because I'm not the person they should be thanking, right? I, I should be thanking them because they're the ones that are dealing with this sacrifice in a more profound way. Um, but I think that just speaks to how beautiful those ceremonies are and what dignity and professionalism they're executed with because they are, they are profound and they, they leave an impact on any, anyone that is able to witness them. And I've, I've heard recently that the speech that you do give to them as you're handing them the flag, it's, um, it's not just meaningful, but it's a little difficult I can't remember where I heard it. It was on a radio program recently. Somebody was talking about it, how it's, even though they've, they've recited it over and over in their heads, just repeatedly, it's still a tough thing to do just to, to bring those words out of your mouth. Yeah. You don't want to, you don't want to mess it up. I mean, if there's one pivotal point in the funeral that in the earliest personal point in the funeral. And so you just, you try to look them in the eye with as much empathy as you possibly can go through that condolences. And I was reading on your bio page at hotchickentakeover.com that after being on active duty as an infantryman for five years, your adjustment to civilian life was a little bumpy. And you'd mentioned in your questionnaire to me that it was even more difficult than, than coming home from deployment. Explain that sense of isolation, that feeling that nobody understands Nobody ever will. How could they? Yeah, I think it's something that I, you know, I spent four years in ROTC. I spent a year at the infantry schoolhouse. I spent four years in the operational army, and I got a week of training on my way out the door hmm. to uh, to help with the adjustment and the transition. And that training is focused around building a resume, networking, job coaching, that sort of thing. Doesn't really cover kind of the emotional burden that comes along with it. Um, I know for me, I experienced um, a lot of guilt coming home, a lot of shame, because 
I was walking away from my guys. They're still out there going on deployment, still serving their country. And um, I felt like I was letting the side down. There's this kind of, I don't know if being this way, well, I don't know if the Army made me this way, but I think being this way made me kind of right for the Army. And that's this notion that you have to be this stoic person, this person that has emotional control, um, presents this persona of invulnerability. And that might be beneficial in combat, might even be necessary um, to waging war, but it's not something that translates particularly well to you know, navigating an argument with a romantic partner or, or a family member or a loved one. So you have to find a way to, to get through that. And I think for me, what I realized is that the greatest adversary that I'm going to face isn't going to be found on some battlefield far away. And it's going to be, it's the person that looks back at me from the mirror every single day. But it's been a long kind of journey to get to that point. Well, as you pointed out, you have to go through all this training to get in, and then you have to get go through more training to to rise to the ranks. And then, like you pointed out, the the training to get back to civilian life is is really short. It's pretty much a learn on your own. And you've taken what you've learned in your adjustments and have applied it to your job at Hot Chicken Takeover. You've putting you're putting into practice the art of looking past the very things that tend to isolate people in other environments. The the whole concept of empathy. How have you gone about that, and, and what have you learned along the way trying to do that? Yeah, so uh, Hot Chicken Takeover is a fair chance employer, um, and what that means practically speaking is that we employ individuals who might um, have been affected by incarceration, criminal background, substance abuse, homelessness. Um, so we have a team of people that, in other environments, might very well be experiencing that same sense of isolation that I described um, of, of feeling like nobody will understand, nobody ever will, how could they? Um, but when you're surrounded by others that do understand, there's immense power in that. And even if you know, I didn't have the same experiences uh, as those people that might, are coming out of incarceration, being around and in a community of people that is willing to kind of put those things by the wayside and interact with you kind of person to person was really helpful for my own transition. Um, and I, I was just really lucky that I found my place at Hot Chicken Takeover because uh, it certainly played a role in helping me transition. And last question, and it's the same one I ask pretty much everyone more or less. And, and folks, let me explain why I ask this question to every veteran. And it's Always the last question. Everyone's experiences are different. The struggles after the military are all different. We've often heard that every day 22 active duty or retired servicemen or women commit suicide. And for some, the adjustment is unbearable. For others, it's been pretty smooth. And it's been a range of everything in between. Mild to severe PTSD, depression, anxiety, alcoholism. As Craig pointed out, just that feeling of, of isolation, sometimes it's just the need to keep busy and, and to keep moving. Some injuries have been minor. Others have faced traumatic injuries, and some have had supporting roles, and others were in heavy combat or were prisoners of war. Not everyone gives the same advice because it's not a one-size-fits-all, and some suggest therapy. Others suggest meeting with other vets and just conversing with them. 
routinely or just talking to anyone, family, friend, or whomever, and still others say to realize no matter how much of your life revolved around the military, it's time for that next chapter. Craig, as you told me, more than likely, most people's next career won't be quite as thrilling as their time in the military. So what advice would you give to those who might be struggling to adjust to civilian life or if they're still in the military, trying to find the role in life outside their job while in uniform? Yeah, I'm glad you asked this question. Um, as I mentioned before, my unit was able to come home with having lost no soldiers, but we have experienced quite a few suicides in my company since returning home. Um, and so it's something that's really important to me. Um, but I think it's important also to speak with some specifics about the veteran suicide issue. Because if we talk carelessly about uh, death by suicide, we can make, potentially you could make the problem worse. So some kind of misconceptions around the 22 a day. One, I think the most recent veteran, or the VA, VA's most recent study announced that it's reduced to 20. Um, and that might seem insignificant, but that's 10%. That's a 10% reduction. So that, yeah. that it's not quite as insignificant. Um, it also that 20 soldiers a day or service members a day includes all active duty, National Guard, reserve component, and veterans. And the, rate, the highest dis rate, disparity rate is for veterans that are, or excuse me, service members that are male between the ages of 18 and 34. Um, but as you mentioned, suicide is a very individualistic experience. There are a lot of social factors that often contribute to these things it could be relationship conflict, um, employment and housing insecurity, uh, economic upheaval, health challenges. But if you imagine those circumstances as they apply to an 18-year-old are very different than how they apply to a 34-year-old who has gone through multiple combat deployments. So um, unfortunately, the, the VA hasn't released specific data on those things, on the or the age-specific factors, but I think we're just at the beginning of understanding this uh, veteran suicide problem. As far as my advice for it, um, I, a couple things come to mind. You have to find someone to talk to. For some, it can be a loved one, like you mentioned, uh, a partner, a brother, or a sister. For me, it was going and getting into therapy. Couldn't re recommend it more, and it's something that. You know, I've been down this path uh, with my therapist for about three years now. I'm, I feel like I'm only now seeing the real benefit of that process. So I encourage you, if you're a veteran and you're seeking help in that way, to stick it out. Secondly, you know, we have this notion in the military that leaders eat last. And I was an officer, and so I see everything through this leadership kind of lens. But the, the idea is that when food is serve to your unit, everyone gets to eat first before the, the leader does. And if there's food left over, you can have the scraps. But if not, then you don't eat. And that's the sacrifice of being a leader. And that's an important mindset to have when you're in charge of a formation. Um, as you transition out, I encourage you to treat yourself as if you were one of the soldiers in that formation. Because I know when I was leading a platoon, I would go through, I would do anything for my men. And it would feel selfish to do things for myself, but you are also a member of that team. So as you transition out, 
you have an obligation to keep yourself healthy as well. So if, for me, it was, you know, staying active and continuing to work out, but find those things, whatever it may be for you and take care of yourself, care for yourself in a, in a meaningful way. Captain Craig Marin, thanks for joining us and thank you for your service. It was an honor. I appreciate the opportunity to talk. Listeners, we hope you've enjoyed season one of Marching Orders. Please tell us what you thought of it by emailing me at shummel at thisweeknews.com. That's shummel at thisweeknews.com. It's first initial, last name. Check out all of our Marching Orders profiles at thisweeknews.com slash marching orders. All the profiles include these podcasts and I'm here to tell you their stories are interesting and truly deserve to be heard. And finally, if you're a social media person, you can find us everywhere. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, everything is at This Week News. That's at This Week News. For This Week Community News, I'm Scott Hummel. Thanks for listening.